games through um, the end of the year up until Advent. We'll pause for Advent this year. And um, just as an encouragement to you, Advent this year um, is not going to be anything crazy. Um, I think one year I went through Hebrews, and Hebrews is not your typical um, Christmas series, but we looked at the incarnation of Jesus through Hebrews and Old Testament prophecy, and it was really good um, to be in that series. This year we're doing really vanilla, really traditional Advent verses, and, um, and the reason I tell you that is I, I would really love it for it to be as accessible as possible um, to folks who only come um, to church during Christmas and Easter time, and so I um, really want to make it as easy as possible for you to invite your friends and neighbors and co-workers and family to come and, um, and hear about the entry of our Lord and Savior Jesus into the world. And so that's coming up there at the end of the year. And then we're actually going to spend all of 2016 um, in the Psalms. We're going to go all the way through the first book of the Psalms. If you're unfamiliar with the Psalms, um, it's bro- 150 Psalms broken up into five books. And um, the first book has 50 Psalms in it. And so we're going to spend um, all of 2016 going through the Psalms and um, and taking a look at the Psalms and how the Psalms point to Jesus and how the Psalms encourage us um, in um, in Christ and how to worship the Lord and, um, and really how the Psalms express all of the different emotions and experiences that you could have. And so Christianity is not just a a happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. You feel like you always have to put on a face and everything's just wonderful. Um, There's a lot of um, depression and discouragement and darkness for just regular Christians. And um, some of the different um, ghettos of Christian worship only have music or engage with the really happy parts of Christian worship. Um, And that just isn't represented in um, the Bible as a whole. We'll go through the Psalms and and look at certainly really happy, joyful songs, but also really sad Psalms and confused Psalms. And so hopefully you're encouraged um, heading through that um, next year through the the different different Psalms in the first book of the Psalms. But we're finishing up James. Um, If you remember, James is the little brother of Jesus um, during most, at least the way the Bible describes it, most of his um, time with Jesus here on this earth. He thought his brother was absolutely off his rocker. Um, Several times his family would tell Jesus, listen, you're crazy. Stop preaching all this stuff. Um, Well, at point in time, um, James not only became a Christian and believed that his elder brother was not just um, a great teacher, but the Messiah, the Christ of the Lord God Almighty, but also became a significant leader in the Christian church. And um, as a Jew, um, had a heart for a lot of the proverbial wisdom of the Old Testament. Um, Jews really didn't separate between the truth of God and its application like we might do. Uh, We might look at a truth statement and play around with that truth statement and maybe memorize the truth statement and ask questions about that truth statement and then maybe, possibly, consider how we might practically implement something from that truth statement in our lives. Well, for Jews, in the way that they acted, they didn't think about truth that way. There wasn't this um, stark separation between what is true and what kind of impact it might have on my life. Uh, For a Jew, that was all mixed in together. There was only truth and God's truth, and God's truth was always practical. And so James's contribution to the New Testament um, is a practical pastoral consideration um, of different aspects of Christian living. And so I hope it's been an encouragement to you to go through um, James um, with us. Uh, we'll be into chapter 5 next week in the last um, chapter of the book of James, so it's really flown by. Um, this morning, um, James is going to lay out two different ways of living 
Um, you might know two different ways of living, at least in our day. We could summarize them as some people have a let go and let God view of life where they simply um, don't do much planning and just figure God is in control and he will work it out and I'm going to sit around and wait to see whatever that working it out looks like. And there might be a, another way and another side that's popularized by Nike's slogan, just do it. And some people think, well, no, God's in control and I'm going to take control of my life and I'm going to do everything and I'm going to plan and I'm going to carve out my little um, niche of the world. You might actually see that breakdown even demographically and by age where we've seen a, an older generation before us go through that would really the, what we call the greatest generation or the get or done generation, folks who really saw a high priority in making sure you planned and that you were frugal and you got accomplished what needed to be accomplished. Whereas now we're moving into a younger generation, especially as I do um, work and discipleship with, um, with young men, um, where you know, living in mom's basement and have heroic, um, valor-filled, um, highly productive lives online and in video games, um, but don't do much to accomplish in the world whatsoever. And so we see these ways that we deal with life. Should I plan? Should I not plan? Is it just a wistful happiness, get by with whatever I need just to, to be who I am and to have a smile on my face? Or are we expected to be diligent in our planning? And how does God factor into um, all of this? And so James is bringing that up this morning, and he's going to show you in this passage that it isn't necessarily a discussion between action or inaction. Whether you're carving out a, a medical degree or your space in the world or playing Halo in your mom's basement, that that's not really the root of what we're trying to get at. He's saying that the root of it is what you think about the Lord God, um, where your heart is before him, and whether it's a heart of arrogance or humility. And so with that brief preface, we'll jump into James chapter 4, verses 13 down through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Since this is the word of our God, we should pray this morning before we consider it. Father, thank you for giving us a word from you. Um, the closed canon of the New Testament, the completeness of the Old Testament, all in which points to your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we would see Jesus this morning. Help us to learn from his little brother, James, as we study this book. Be with us, Lord God, we pray in Christ. Amen. So as we come um, briefly to um, this passage here this morning, as I said, we'll look at two different ways of living that James lays out, and we could summarize the first one as prideful profit or pursuing prideful profit in the world, um, for a little bit of alliteration for you on a Sunday morning. Um, the other would be pursuing providential profit um, in the world, one flowing from a root of pride and arrogance, the other from a dependency on God's providence 
um, an, an older expression of God's decrees that God is in control. He provides for us and he is ordering all of our lives. And so we'll look at those two and make a few um, summary statements before we go. But um, to set aside one thing before we get into it, I'm, I'm not arguing on whether you should be profitable or not. Uh, my introduction um, was a little bit deceptive. It isn't a, should I sit around and do nothing or should I be planning? What you'll see in both of these things is that God expects you to pursue profit in the world. This is not an anti-capitalism verse or an anti-capitalism passage or sermon. Both people are profiting. Both people are pursuing profit. And one of the things that we believe, especially as reformed Christians, is that God has given each Christian a calling in life to pursue with all of their vigor and all of their energy and all of their talents what God has given them to do. And so not just fiscal profit, um, prosperity, but prosperity in your family and in your community, taking all that you are and all that God has given you to leverage for the sake of his kingdom is one of the big reasons that the Protestants led the Protestant Reformation. There had begun to be this idea that only monks and people in political power were people who could do anything in the world, and everybody else was just relegated to a lower realm of ho-hum living until you died. And the Protestant Reformers looked and said, no, the, the boy who plows the field is just as important in God's kingdom as the monk or scholar who writes the Bible translation as the king who rules the kingdom because each one has received gifts and callings from God to be used and leveraged in his kingdom. And I think it'll be important for us heading forward in our age to remember that, that God expects us to plan and to profit. This whole hipster laziness thing is, um, is a funny thing that's come about, a generation of folks who sit around and don't expect to do much with their life, at least until their late 30s, um, patently unbiblical. God expects every hour to be leveraged for him, every moment to be leveraged for him. And it's more complicated than just guys and girls sitting around and doing nothing and touring Europe for three or four decades and then deciding to do whatever they want to do in life or whatever it is. It's, there's certainly a, an aspect that all of us feel, especially young folks, uh, a status or a level to live up to of the parents who've gone before us or expectations that other people have set for us. And so many people in their early 30s or lowers have just decided that those expectations and the possibility of failure is just too great, so I simply will do nothing. There's a gospel answer to that, and that's a different sermon to preach, but I wanted to start at least by saying that God expects you, Christian, no matter who you are, no matter how old you are, no matter um, whether you're a guy or a girl, no matter married or not married, or empty nesting or not empty nesting, or whatever it is, God expects you to work diligently for his kingdom and to find great fulfillment and joy in that. Now, that given, how should you go about doing that? And James in this passage says there's one bad way there in the beginning. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Brings a question in verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And then summarized in verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. And so there is a way to live life as a Christian, that flows from a root of arrogance and pride. And I should say 
that that way of living life can be biblically ordered. You can pursue family and life and calling and business and vocation, social impact, work in the church, ordered by what the Bible says should be done between the right and the wrong. You can do it in such a way that yields fruit and profit in the world. You can have impact in relationships and in your church and your community, and you can make a lot of money. So you can do it both biblically and ethically and be successful in the eyes of the world and yet do it from a heart of arrogance and pride. Saying, oh, I'll go here and there and make this much money and I have this plan to do that. And at the outskirts, it doesn't seem that bad because you just heard me say, hey, all of you should leverage your gifts and plan and look to proceed and pursue God's kingdom and extend it in all the ways that he's given you. And so it seems somewhat that James is now pulling a bait and switch as if that's not a good thing to plan. And he's going deeper as a good pastor and putting his thumb on the heart of arrogance and pride. And he's saying, if you don't start out with an eye to the Lord God, if you don't start out in humility, but instead in a place of arrogance and pride, all of your endeavors are tainted with arrogance and boastful and braggadocious sin. And he says, don't do that. I know many of you, no matter where you are in your vocations, have picked up different books and watched various movies. And to say that most of the people that are set before us today as great leaders, the lives that we chronicle and the biographies that we read, whether it's a Michael Jordan or a Steve Jobs or whoever else, we read and we want to know what made them so successful. What are the different attributes that they employed in their businesses? What were their workflows? How did they run meetings? We look at even family life. Who were the great people? people who raised up children who loved the Lord and had vibrant marriages and did whatever these things and we read and we study and what we long for is what are these practical principles that we can put into practice in our own lives and so gain prosperity and what to remember is that a lot of those people ended up with their lives in shambles. They accomplished so much by worldly standards and yet were openly empty inside. I mean, you can look through, there, there are moments where you'll hear a celebrity say something that shocks you. Here a few ba- years back, even on you know, a football Sunday, to say Tom Brady had a quote just about the emptiness of life, you know, Super Bowl rings and everything else he'd experienced, or to hear Jim Carrey, as I've said before, say, I wish everybody could be rich so that then they could find out that richness doesn't make you happy. Or even to hear Michael Phelps a few Olympics ago to be asked, what are you going to do after you're done with the Olympics and swimming? And say, I don't know. I don't know what there is beyond that. You see, we have this mix where we look at people in the world that we say are profitable and great and fruitful, and we try to employ their techniques at gaining that kind of profit and fruit with no eye towards who our God is and who we are before him. And we can be biblical and we can be ethical and we can be at least a little bit successful and all the while miss what James is saying in this passage. Do you see how dangerous that is? I would long for you, no matter how old you are, to not look back five years from now or 10 years from now or 20 or 30 years from now, however the Lord gives you, and look back on your life and simply see profit, but rank arrogance. 
simply see that you did read the books and do the work and put into practice the principles that you thought would bring you happiness and though you gained a lot according to the world, you found yourself in the end empty. I don't want that for any of you. And if any of you are now thinking back on your life and whatever time the Lord's given you and you're wondering, is that where I am? I want to tell you this morning that there is hope in Christ. You can decide after this sermon, you can decide right now that you'd like to live your life in a different way, in a different direction, according to the encouragement and the challenge of James. And so James comes and he says here in the beginning, verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And notice he still says, we will live and do this and that. He still says we're going to plan, we're going to do, we're going to profit, we're going to do business, we're going to live our lives and love our spouses and raise our kids. We're going to do, but we're going to do out of a position of saying, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that. And it's not a magic spell. It's not as if on the front of your planning or your strategic sessions of weaknesses and opportunities and challenges, you sit in your business meetings and all of a sudden say, well if the Lord wills, and then you go into your meeting that somehow those few words in the front end obligates God to bless you. Or simply saying those words will assume that all of a sudden you're not coming from a place of arrogance and boastfulness. It's very popular within our reform circles to to end letters or to use the the initials DV. I don't know if you've seen that before. Um, Some of you have have come into what it means to, to be a part of a, a Protestant congregation or a, a reformational um, denomination, and you get emails, or you see in books those letters DV, and you think, what is that? Is that like David Victor? Like, what does that stand for? And it's been a habit for um, scholars and pastors and Christians in the Reformation to abbreviate Deo Valente um, in their writing, um, God's will, if God wills. But it's not just words or an abbreviation that makes it effective. It's realizing that we stand before a holy God and that we can make robust, full, accurate, strategically informed, biographically well-read plans and still at the end of the day, God is God. I can do all that I can with all of my capabilities all that I have, I can set a goal out in front of me and even with all that I have and all that I am and all that I think I can accomplish, I can't change one iota of God's plan for me. I can't even begin to bend his arm behind his back. I can't even begin to try to manipulate or control him. Even all that I have and all that I am, I can't escape. And on my good days, don't want to escape God's sovereign control over my life. And that's such a good thing for me when I do my planning. Because it prepares me two ways. I I plan with humility. You see, the problem with not saying that or believing that is if God's not God, then you are. If you think that you look at your life and you want to accomplish this goal and have these things at the end and you're going to leverage all that you have and God never factors into that equation, well, guess what? You're him. You think you can craft your life based on enough diligent work and the things that you think you can do and enough stubborn, hard-nosed work, you will get it done it's not as much American as it is arrogantly boastful. 
Is he coming from a place of saying, my God is sovereign and I love him and he will do what he wants to do and I am going to give all that I am and I'm going to work as hard as I can under his gaze to try and honor him and then know at the end of the day what he wants done will be done. Well, all of a sudden I can go into my endeavors with the pressure off. I mentioned how hard it is for people under 30. If, if you're over 30 and it's still a pressure, talk to me. I haven't gotten there yet um, to know whether it is or not. But to feel the pressure and expectation of being somebody of making something out of your life, of having a better standard of living than your parents, of just keeping your job in such a fluid economy or getting a job and hoping that you can raise a family. The expectations are crushing. So either you decide that, that you're the man or you're the woman and you're gonna conquer the world and be Superman or Superwoman, or you look to the Lord God and say, I can't do this. Lord, you are my, my king and my God, and I'm going to labor, and if I have a job and I'm able to do what I want to do, that's going to be your gifting. You see, you're finally free of those expectations of being someone because the only one who is someone is for you in Christ. It dribbles down to our idea of sanctification. Sanctification is the fancy Christian word for growing as a Christian becoming more mature of a Christian than you ever have been. And one of the pervasive lies within Christianity is that sanctification is the progress and process of needing God less. That God is making me more into the person that I need to be, so I need less of his help. Kind of like God is a great divine personal trainer. The assumption is you spend long enough with a personal trainer, you meet your, your goals and maybe learn to do the exercises on your own, and then you don't need your personal trainer anymore. If you have a financial advisor, well, maybe you learn enough about financial advising and your finances where you don't need him anymore. And the progress in those relationships is actually to need the person less. A lot of people look at God that way. You grow me in holiness and capability and capacity for my family and for my church and for you, and I will need you less and less when the view of Christian growth is actually the opposite. It's actually growing in deeper dependence on God and who he is. So if you want to know if you're growing as a Christian, if you think that you need God less than you did last week or last month, you've actually gone backwards. If this week or this month as compared to last month, you look and say, I have only realized I have more need of him than I ever have before. Guess what? You've, you've made progress. The goal is dependence on God, not less. And that's reflected in the fact when we start to make our plans say, well, I am so dependent on this God who loves me in Christ that all of my plans are dependent on him. Everything that I do is dependent on him. In fact, if he were to take his hand off of me, I would wreck my life in short order. Praise God that he's with me today and tomorrow and giving me opportunities to repent and opportunities to succeed because I am so dependent on him. And where we see that most illustrated is in the life of Jesus. Again, James's big brother. Now you would think that if anyone had reason to lack dependence on God, it would be the second person of the Trinity, God himself. If you would think that anyone could come into the world as man and God and live a capable life full of complex plans that could be carried out, it would be God himself in the world. If anyone was able to, pro to progress in capability and personal holiness so much to no longer need to pray as much, then it would be God himself, Jesus, 
the Christ. And yet what we see in this book is he is wholly dependent on God at every moment. Paul Miller, who wrote a good book on prayer, um, said this in um, a seminar I I, um, attended with him. He said, what if you were sitting, and I'll I'll use it for our context, what if you were sitting in Raven's Nest Coffee House or Chick-fil-A or wherever you go in Culpeper and and you could hear a, a conversation at a table next to you um, like sometimes I'm prone to listen in on. And you see, and it's a, a father and a, an adult son. And the adult son's saying things like, well, I don't know, Dad, you just need to tell me what to do. Like, I'm really confused about moving forward, and I have all these plans, and I really don't want to do anything unless um, it's really what you want to do for me, because I, I really don't want to make another, another move. And so just, just give me your insight on on what needs to happen next, and, and if, that's, if that's not what we need to do, then maybe I'll wait a few weeks and we'll come back and we'll, we'll talk about it again. Well, well, you might say that there were maybe some enmeshment issues, that, that maybe that adult son should grow up and be his own man and not need so much of his, his father's input. But when we look at the word of God, we find Jesus doing that at every step, constantly going back to his father in heaven and asking for help. If we take two different instances in his life, one in the beginning and one in the end, we look at him choosing disciples. He's been hanging out with various guys. He's going to choose 12 disciples. I mean, you would think with all that Jesus knows as God, that he would have the capability of doing that on his own. I mean, he has access to all the personality tests of all of the disciples. He knows whether they're an I or a D, an ISTJ or Ian, whatever. And he knows their entrepreneurial index on the Harvard. I mean, he, he, he's God. He knows everything there is to know about these folks. If, if anyone could pick 12 disciples to be disciples, it would be Jesus. And anyone could do it at any moment. And yet, what does he do before he chooses his disciples? He goes up on the mountain and he spends all night in prayer talking to his dad in heaven. He's about to make a major decision in his ministry and he needed to spend time with his father. He needed to spend prayerful time asking, your will be done. What do you want me to do? If anyone could step out without having to do that, it would be Jesus and yet he needs his father showing us what the Christian life should be like. And then it's all the way through his life. But if we fast forward to the end of his life in Luke 22, when he's in the garden, remember Jesus was, was God and man, one person, two natures, both divine and true man. And in our catechism, it says that he's, he, he has a true body and a reasonable soul. That means he has you no know, true body, like fingernails, hair, skin, real body, not fake body. Reasonable soul, not like reasonable, like I got a reasonable deal on that car when I bought it, but a reasonable soul and reasoning. He thought like a man. And in his thinking, and thinking like a human and a man, it meant that he did not have access to the totality of divine knowledge. So in some places, people could ask him, hey, when are you coming back? And Jesus could say, I don't know. I don't know when the Son of Man will return. I don't know when that day will be. It wasn't that in that moment he ceased to be God. It's that he spoke out of his humanity and the limited capacity that he had in his man. In his humanity, because human is created, he could not fathom the depths of deity, even though in his deity he knew the answer. And so we see him in the Garden of Gethsemane there, seeing what's going to happen the next day, his own crucifixion, his death, and not just 
a single death, but a death for all of his people taking the weight of his people's sin upon him. What does he say? Father, your will be done. But if possible, would you take this cup from me? Then he closes and says, nevertheless, your will be done. He prefaces on both sides of his request, your will be done, Father. He is there in that moment looking death in the face and as a man, even though knowing what it will accomplish, he doesn't like it and doesn't want to do it. He wants to preserve life. But on either side of that request, our Savior said, Father, your will be done. He didn't go into the garden and say, I've got this. I don't want to do. I'm going to face down death and sin and Satan and armies of demons. He went in still dependent, not any less strong or capable, not without any, without any kind of sin or anything else like that, but still dependent on God for what had to happen. So I wonder, Christian, if your Savior, perfect God and perfect man, needed to live a life of dependency, of constant prayer with his Father in heaven daily as he lived out his life on this earth, then what do you need? How does that diagnose our pride and our arrogance and give us a moment of pause to think, wow, I'm acting even more capable than Jesus acted when he was on the earth? I mean, that's a little bit of bragging if that's where we find ourselves. If we're acting like we need God less than Jesus, that's, that's a little bit of pride. That's kind of up there in terms of insanity and operating in the world. And what kind of invitation is that to you? What kind of invitation from the Lord Jesus Christ to say, I have not only forgiven you your sins, but come in and enter into this relationship with my Father. Come in with me, and we together will bring all of your needs and all of your requests to the Father. When Paul is talking about the difficulty of prayer in Romans, and that you reach those moments where you just can't get it out. You can't, it, it's so complex that you don't even know what to ask of God. And he says that the Holy Spirit helps in that moment and helps those groanings inside of you be voiced in heaven. So Holy Spirit and Jesus both helping us come to the Father and live a life of dependency in the way that we live our lives. Who in here, who of us, doesn't have a need to say, Lord God, forgive me for my arrogance, my pride, my boastfulness. Lord God, would you help me enter into a life of productivity that yet lives under your sovereign will and recognizes it? Give me that kind of joy in pursuing my goals. Give me that kind of joy in the hard hours in the middle of the day or the the five to six o'clock hour when it's so difficult. Give me that kind of dependence on you to know that you are with me. So what do you do at this point if this is where you found yourself? First of all, you can repent of your pride and your boasting and your bragging. But there are two practices that the Bible lays out that really help calibrate that dependent relationship with the Lord. And the first is frequent prayer. I promise you, without a doubt, the frequency of your prayer will tell you how dependent you think you are on God. 
without a doubt. And so if you think, well, I'm, I'm the exception, I don't pray very much, but I'm completely and wholly, understandably dependent on God, I immediately know you're a liar. It's not true. But also, what kind of invitation is that? So if all of a sudden you decide, well, I'm not acting very dependent on God, and I'm not praying very much, well, what should I do? Talk to him about it. The first prayer should be, I realize, Father, that I'm living my life not very dependent on you. I want my prayers to be molded by your word. I'll be encouraged by the grace that there is for G- in Jesus for arrogant Christians like me to know that I've been forgiven and that you and your time will humble me and show me how much you love me. And I need your Holy Spirit. I need Jesus to model for me and to encourage and grow me in a relationship with you, Heavenly Father. Frequent prayer. You see, you have problems all day. You have challenges all day. There are endless opportunities to go to God and say, help, please. But we think that as an inefficient use of time, we think if we waste time in prayer, there'll be less time for us to do something or create a to-do list or check our calendar or send the email that if we actually pray, we're being inefficient. And you hear that come out of my lips and you say, oh, no, no, that's not true. But that's how we function. I don't suggest this But Martin Luther always said that he had too much to do in his day to not start the day with two hours of prayer. That's not, I mean, that'd be your practice, but at least in Martin Luther's mind, he's like, oh no, I I have too much to do today to not start my day praying. There is far too much. My schedule is far too busy to not start off with significant moments of prayer um, in the morning. What kind of thinking is there? And what kind of invitation is there for you to draw near to God in dependence? And secondly, second practice, generosity. Radical biblical generosity. I promise you, if I look at your prayer life, and not just your pocketbook or your checkbook, but how you deal with your time and your possessions, I will know how dependent you think you are on God. It's easy during booms to try and take the tax credit and just give a little bit. But when you start to look at all of your possessions as God's possessions, all of your time as God's time, and see when to start giving back, not because you understand how it will be fiscally or efficiently productive for you to do so, but because you love the Lord God and you're going to trust him with what you give back, that's a life of dependence. It's the same thing in the Lord. It's the same thing that the Lord Jesus did. And so if, if this is challenging you, look at your prayer life and look at your generosity life And give yourself a little bit of a a health check. What do those things say about how dependent you think you are on God? And if they say bad things, the beauty of the Christian gospel is God says, come to me. Come to me. When you see your sin and your weakness and your greed and your arrogance and your boastfulness, come to me and receive forgiveness. And as you see me and receive that kind of love, you find yourself changed to be a more prayerful, giving person. It's not that you knuckle down and say, well, I'm going to give more and I'm going to pray more because I'm going to be that kind of person that you realize you're not. That you have a God who loves you in Christ and invites you into this kind of life. So would we be a group of people who plan that way, who fight arrogance and boasting and certainly are wildly profitable for the kingdom of God? I want us to do amazing things for his kingdom, but I want us to do them in humility saying, if the Lord wills. But if the Lord wills something else for us, then we'll receive that well and we'll trust him in it. 
honestly expected, you know, this church planning thing to go different. When I tell people, even the amount of suffering that's in our congregation um, that we're going through, they're like, wow. It's like, I know, I didn't, I didn't plan on that in our first, you know, five or six years for so many people to get cancer or sick or injuries or ill or struggle in their families. I, I didn't expect that. I've never seen a church that suffered as much as our church has, but has that not been God's will for us? See, some of it is, is church planner boasting. We're going to say, well, this is the plan. We're going to be here by this week. We'll be here by this year. We'll be here by this year. Now I laugh when people ask me what my five-year plan is for the church. I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to work hard and trust the Lord. It hasn't been what I thought so far, and I don't think it's going to be what I think moving from here on forward, but he's good. We're going to work hard and pray hard and trust him and find boundless grace with Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this, your word, for the encouragement that James received from his older brother Jesus, the Savior you look to, the same Savior that we look to. And so, Father, as we live and work and plan, as we create strategies for accomplishing goals, we do it all in light of the fact that you're going to do what you want to do and that that doesn't mean that we should shut down and let go and just let you, but we should look to you at every moment and saying, we are going to work as hard as we can, Lord God, and know that you are the God who blesses because we are your workmanship, Created in, God, good, created in Christ Jesus for good works that you've laid out in front of us to walk in. Help us to walk in them. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. When we stand and respond in song.